So I just I looked in the mirror one day and I said, you know, you're a pretty good artist, but you can't write. I mean, you don't even know where to put a comma in half of the sentences you write. You know, you, you need an editor. So I was like, all right, so I'm gonna instead of taking a lot of random courses, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into a program. I'm gonna get into a master's program and I'm gonna learn how to write. So it forced me to write a lot, and um, I think I'm a little bit better at it now. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. The comic strip Sherman's Lagoon has made cartoonist Jim Toomey a beloved figure in the world of ocean science and policy. The strip's central character, Sherman, is a lazy, overweight, great white shark with a kind heart. Like the entire cast... Sherman is basically a person in a fish costume, living underwater and yet equipped with a laptop, iPod, and other dryland gadgets. He and his fellow denizens of the reef have entertained readers in more than 30 countries with jokes about hairless beach apes, also known as beach-going humans, and pot shots at pop culture and various political figures, all the while introducing them to a wide range of pressing environmental issues facing our ocean. Jim's in great demand on the TED circuit and at national and global ocean policy conferences. Jim describes his career as one of gleaning success out of a field of failures. Join me now to learn how this paperboy turned engineer became a cartoonist and a global ocean advocate. Well, Jim, welcome to the podcast. It's delightful to see you again and get to chat with you some more. It's delightful to be here, Kathy. I, I'm very honored to be uh, your guest on this great podcast. Thanks. I know you enjoyed the episode with Jan Elliott very much. Yeah. I figured cartoonist to cartoonist must have been fun to listen to. Yeah, no, you don't hear shop talk very often, especially on general media. So it was very interesting. I learned a lot, actually. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, let's help everybody learn a little bit about you. You're you're a fascinating mix of an engineer and a cartoonist, which I want to explore at some length. Sure. And I know you're also a wild and crazy ocean guy because we did some very fun escapades together when I was at NOAA. Yeah. But let's start with the earlier days. Tell me about the young Jim Toomey growing up in Virginia and yeah. what early memories and influences that you look back down and you see, yeah, I think those started me down this road. Right. I think what got me into cartoons or comic strips was I was a paperboy. So I had I needed something to, to read while I walked through my neighborhood and I knew the, the route by heart. So I didn't even really need to look at where I was walking. I could just so I, I read the comics. You know, I'm kind of a dinosaur. So the comics I read were Peanuts and Garfield. And uh, later on, Farside was one of my favorites. Yep. Bloom County, Calvin and Hobbes, of course. So those comic strips, some of those came out after I was syndicated, but the probably the one formative comic strip for me was was Peanuts because it was kind of I, I related to it. I was a little boy and he was in a world where he just couldn't get success. He couldn't fly a kite. He couldn't win an election at school or whatever. And and uh, so I related to to that character as, as a kid. The other big inspiration when I was when I was a boy, another media figure was Jacques Cousteau. And his his documentaries and his sort of regular series, the the ocean world of Jacques, Jacques Cousteau, it was it was something I really looked forward to as a boy. And uh, so it was nice that you know he was a pioneer in bringing the ocean into everyone's living rooms, and they did it so well with the you know the Rod Serling soundtrack and the 
cinematography behind it and everything. So it was really well done. And it just sucked me totally into that whole ocean world. For me, it was a it was an alien world that was filled with crazy creatures, and I just couldn't get enough of it. Did you live near the ocean? Was it part of your experience on vacations and wetting your toes in the surf, or was it complete? Because you were somewhere in Northern Virginia, if I recall. So how right. alien was the ocean to your everyday experience? It was pretty alien. I mean, my family would pack the station wagon up, and we would go to the the Delaware shore for a week or two in the summer. And that was pretty much it. So um, it wasn't until I was a young adult that I could kind of choose to go to the ocean on my own. There was one other formative experience that's ocean related was that my dad was a Navy pilot. We actually had a family private plane. It wasn't, it wasn't a fancy plane. It was a Cessna. It was, you know, not a, not a G5 or anything like that. So he would pile the family into the, the Cessna and uh, the single engine, you know, high wing airplane, yep. and we would all fly away to crazy places. And I was maybe 12 or 13 when he packed us up and we, we flew down to Florida, then we filled with fuel, and then we flew over to the Bahamas. Wow. Pretty gutsy in a single engine Cessna. Yeah. No, he, well, he was, he flew in World War II. So he, <laughs> that wasn't gutsy at worse. all. <laughs> yeah. He's seen it all. So we flew low over the Bahamas, the Bahamian waters. As most people know who've been down there, it's it's a giant kiddie pool. It's uh, maybe ten <laughs> feet deep, crystal clear water. Um, you can see everything in it. It's like a giant window into the ocean. So I saw I saw manta rays, and I that was the birth of my comic strip. Actually, the the birth of Sherman's Lagoon was was me seeing a shark. I could tell it was a shark. We were flying at about five hundred feet, and it was in a lagoon. And uh, I have that image in my head to this day. Um, we saw coral reefs, we saw hills and valleys and things like that. So for me, it really, it proved to me that the ocean was, was not just a, you know, a, this body of water. The postcard that you see from right. the shore. It wasn't just yeah. this blue gray veneer. It was, um, it was another world full of amazing texture and life and variety. So wow. it changed my life. That was in your early teens? Yeah, I was probably 12 or 13. Okay. So when you saw that shark, I mean, I'll bet you didn't right then say, oh, its name is Sherman and it lives in a lagoon. <laughs> so were you, were you already a doodler and artistic? I mean, just one thing, I loved the comics too, but there was no way in God's great earth that that was ever going to connect with me becoming a, an artist and a cartoonist. How did and it the connect? world's a better place for it. For you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. The world's probably a better place for me not being an engineer, actually. So, <laughs> so help me tie this together. You love the comic strips. Yeah. From probably younger than that, probably nine or 10 in your paper route. And around 12 or 13, you have this mesmerizing, you know, flying low over the Bahamas and, and realizing how three-dimensional and alive it is. But those are still pretty separate things. And, and you went off and went to college for an engineering degree. So paint that early picture. Where did, were you a lifelong doodler like Jan Elliott or did you cultivate that skill later on? No, I was a lifelong doodler, and that's probably why I'm not a, a doctor. I was doodling in the margins of my school books my, most of my student life, which, you know, after a while, you run out of career options and you have to become a cartoonist. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I always love to draw. I, you know, a cartoonist can't, most cartoonists don't draw all that well. If you ask me to draw, you know, a horse, I, if the horse would have a big nose and short legs and it would look like a cartoon horse. I'm, a, I'm actually not a very good artist. And I'm not really a very good writer either. But um, I have enough of both that sort of that combination to make make a comic strip. And cartoonists, comic strip writers, comic strip artists are, you know, kind of unique writers. They We have to really package up an episode of our story in 20 or 30 words. Yeah. Um, and we have to say it all with dialogue. Almost all of us say 100% of our story with dialogue. I mean, we really tell an entire story arc in five or six or seven episodes. So for us, brevity is really everything. You're like the forerunners of Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We, it's just a very, very difficult art form to, to, to get good at. Um, so I think in a way it's improved my writing. I, I'm a very economical writer. Yeah. So another place that drawing is an essential skill is engineering and you know, a handful of the most prominent NASA engineers that I worked with, two in particular come to mind. They were not great students. Uh, one was poor Hispanic 
boy living out near San Antonio of a you know, nationality and a generation that no one advised to go to college. Uh, so these two young guys, the motorcycle geek and the Hispanic boy, are both advised by their high school counselors to, since they kind of like tinkering and engineering, but they clearly can't really be an engineer, they're advised to go take a course in engineering drawing with mm-hmm. the idea that they could they could put into the drawings the ideas and creations of other, quote unquote, real engineers. And of course, both had much more talent and grit than that and ended up becoming engineers. But how did you fall into an engineering degree other than, I guess, follow your dad's footsteps? And what did that feel like to be trying becoming an engineer? You worked as an engineer for a while. Right. Yeah, it was my dad's, my grandfather's, my brother's. It was kind of a, a tradition in the male side of our family. Um, so in a way, when when I was a sophomore in college and I had to choose a major, um, it seemed like, you know, lacking any other firm decisions, I I figured I'd, I'd just go with mechanical engineering. Although, you know, I was kind of a math and science guy anyway. I did better in those subjects in high school. So I did naturally gravitate towards engineering. And I actually did it for a while. And I, I actually, I loved it. And it, it's really a fantastic education. If you if you have to go to, if you're going to go to college for four years and pay all that tuition and take all those courses, then, you know, engineering is a pretty darn good route because you end up taking a lot of courses that you may not study, you know, after you get out of college. In other words, I, as an adult, I read a lot of history and read a lot of art and biographies and so forth, but I've, I haven't touched a math book since college yeah. or physics or science or anything like that. So it's within the discipline of college, it's a it's a very good route to, to take, not to mention the fact that your your employment prospects are not bad getting out. Yeah. And, you know, a lot is said in the STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, education world, a lot is said about the value and the virtue of the habits of mind that studying mm-hmm. science or engineering will give you sort of as a passport to whatever course in life uh, you may follow in the end. What's your sense of that? Is that a truism or baloney marketing talk? I think it's true, but I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that would would say that English literature or dissecting stories or whatever would also help you with that, develop that analytical mind. I know that early in my engineering studies, I was programming computers and just the whole act of writing code and trying to write code that's the most efficient in the shortest amount of code, there's a logical process to that that I think really helped me form my logical thinking. So the whole process of, you know, the engineering problems, the typical exams where you would get the problems, the homeworks, the labs, and so forth, they were they were all about identifying the problem correctly and then identifying the shortest path to the solution. And and that's really the key to a lot of things in life is often I think we stumble just identifying the problem. We tend to look at a problem in terms of things that we're familiar with. And so we may identify the problem as something that it's not. And uh, engineers have to approach a problem. And if they don't identify it correctly, their solution is just not going to work. So it's it's kind of, it's a, it's a brutal profession in that regard. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, it, that sounds outwardly like kind of intuitively makes a lot of sense, but what would be an example of not formulating, right. I, I think of it as a combination of not recognizing what the problem really is, like getting underneath sure. the symptoms to what's the real issue here, and you know, formulating it like if you're trying to figure out a mathematic something mm-hmm. or other, it's, oh, that's right, area is this and that and the other, and then also putting the right questions. So can you come up with some examples of Maybe from one of your labs, like, you know, the good examples are always when we got it wrong, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, not to demean other professions, but you can go to your attorney and present a problem and they could they could offer a solution that may or may not be right on target for, for what you need. Or there's other professions out there where if you're not right on target with your solution, it still kind of works. But if you don't put that fin on that rocket exactly where you need to put it. The rocket crashes, or it's so engineering is will tell you what's right and what's wrong very quickly and very brutally. The tolerance for right and wrong, and I think is 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 much smaller in the world of engineering, whether you're building airplanes or or buildings or bridges or whatever, um, than it is in a, in a lot of other professions. I think that's absolutely true. We used to, uh, yeah, in the lead up to a, a space shuttle launch. There would be a moment where all the 
the senior engineers responsible for all the different systems would be in a room together. And it's called the flight readiness review. And if, you know, if there'd been some couple of people BSing and arguing with each other, you know, transforming or seeing some technical problem as an opinion battle between you and me and, you know, ego, ego was getting in there and I want to win. This was one of those bright light moments where you'd figuratively push a piece of paper across the table to you, Jim, and say, great. You really have to be true that two and two is five. You just sign right here. You, you are attesting that this crew is going to come back alive when we bank on your two plus two is five answer. Sign right here, sir. And, you know, <laughs> that would kind of peel away a whole lot of the BS that can get into other business arrangements. Yeah. In engineering school, there weren't a lot of essay questions. You know, it was just, you, know, you had to write a number. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was right or wrong. <laughs> and, it, and it's not an opinion and it's not what I think. It It is or it isn't. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And at the end of the test, you confer with all your classmates and you you wrote what? 6.5? I, you know, and it's like one of us is wrong. I mean, this yeah, is terrible. That's right. Yeah. So you see the shark when you're 13 and you go to engineering school. What's mm -hmm. been happening with Sherman and the shark and the lagoon between 13 and getting your bachelor's degree? Yeah. Well, I, I stayed obsessed with, with the ocean and, and sharks in particular throughout my childhood. I, you know, I read a lot of other books about the ocean and sharks. And, and uh, of course, Jaws came out a little later. And I was probably the only kid in the theater rooting for the shark. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> so anything that was ocean related for me was just an instant hit. Again, I didn't get to the, the ocean much. I was still on these family trips. And then I guess during college, I really kind of focused on getting that mechanical engineering degree. And I didn't do a whole lot. I, well, I take that back. So I, that's when my cartooning, my newspaper cartooning career, quote unquote, started. I became a political cartoonist for the, for the school paper. And so that's when I first experienced deadlines and more importantly, audiences. And my wow. audience, unlike as a syndicated cartoonist, your audience is out there somewhere, right? You don't really share space with your audience that often you know, your husbands and wives or whatever will read your strip, but you can't really trust their opinion, right? Yeah. So, so, but living within that student body and drawing cartoons and having opinions in political cartoons was a very educational experience for me. And to see your work in print for the first time, because newsprint, it's it's an old fashioned um, art form and it's going the way of the buggy whip quickly. But there, you know, when you, when you draw and have it reproduced in the newspaper, there's a learning curve to it. There's things that look good and things that don't look good. And so the beauty of going to college for, for all of you out there who are pondering, all of you young folks out there are pondering college is that you can pretty much do anything and um, try it. And if you fail miserably, it's just, you know, it's just an experiment. It's not, it's not the real world. So certainly not a verdict on the rest of your life. Exactly. Well, so the college paper will print anything. So it's great to, if you, if you aspire to be in media or newspaper, you know, start starting in with your college paper is great. To your point, they the failures just kind of get forgotten. Yeah. So did you get feedback from students as you walked around campus, both both about the characters and the artwork and your sure. your dumbass opinions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I learned I learned the truism that all politics are local. So I would I would usually devote one or two strips or I, it was actually a, a, a single panel political cartoon, a la, you know, if you know Pat Oliphant or Jeff McNally or those kinds of cartoons. But my audience, my so-called audience, my classmates were m much more into, much, much more reactive to the cartoons that had something to do with the college issues rather than the uh. national issues. So I would devote one or two panels per week to a national issue, whatever it was. And then one or two panels a week to a college related issue. And they were much more receptive to that. And they would talk about that a lot more. You were on daily deadline for a cartoon while you were taking your mechanical engineering degree. Yeah. Well, well I, I think I did three or four a week. I didn't do it. I think the paper published six days a week and I think maybe every other day. So it wasn't quite daily, but yeah, it was a, it was a pretty overbearing extracurricular for me. <laughs> So off you go after you get your degree in the early 1980s, and you, you became an engineer for a while. What kind of work were you doing? Well, I call it an engineer. It was really cubicle work. It was project management, spreadsheets, and 
coordinating contractors and vendors and so forth like that. So I wasn't designing bridges or doing any real engineering work. The first place I came along uh, or encountered dates for any of your cartoons, and this this really surprised me that the first mention I could find of Sherman's Lagoon was actually Siggy's Lagoon and Lagoonen, <laughs> Swedish and Norwegian, respectively. Right. When did Sherman and the Lagoon actually become the comic, and how did they end up in Sweden and Norway so early on? Right. Um I think I, my first cartoon published in 1991, October 91. And so I'm, I guess I have a 30th anniversary coming up here soon. I should be retired here. <laughs> no, 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 please don't. <laughs> <laughs> my syndicate, King Features, was the one when you... So to be a newspaper cartoonist, you almost always have to be part of a syndicate. Newspapers really won't buy features from directly from artists. They they have You have to sort of team up with a syndicate and then they sell all the features to the car to, to the newspapers. So they have an international part. They're kind of like your agent. Yeah, in a sense? exactly. Okay. So the agents, you know, the publishing industry or the, the, they use agents as sort of the talent filter for the industry. You know, they don't want to look at talent directly. They, they have a, an army of agents that, you know, identify the talent and that's what syndicates do as well. Uh, got it. It saves the newspapers a lot of time. Um, and then my syndicate has an international sales force. So uh, the Swedes, the Scandinavians, it was popular in Norway as well. They, for some reason, my comic strip, my sort of sensibility really, really struck them. So it became popular there. I lived in Norway for a year and a half in my college years as an exchange student. And I, I can completely see what you just said about the kind of, it's a subtle, a subtle form of humor, uh, very economical with words. Yep. You know, if we had a great weekend and you go back to work on Monday, you know, we'll throw out 34 different words, 25 of which we just made up on the spot because they sound fun, to say how great it was. And Norwegians and Swedes, uniformly, from the pleasant picnic to the life-changing experience, will simply say, Yada Valfit. <laughs> yes, it was fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is there something about this strip? And it's popular in Canada as well. Um, I think there's that, I don't know, my strip's maybe a little drier than your average pie-in-the-face comic strip. And certain cultures like like Scandinavian and, and Canadian really, really do love it a lot. Well, it's nuanced and sly about its social commentary rather than pie-in-the-face, too. But there's a lot of it in there. Right, yeah. So I, I sort of call that the Trojan horse approach to social commentary, where you're, you know, it looks like a, a fun... Simple, silly cartoon. Yeah. But I'm sneaking something in there. If you if you let me in, I'll I'll sneak sneak <laughs> something in there for you. So you get syndicated and published in '91, and with your engineering degree, I guess probably hanging on the wall somewhere, you went off to Stanford for an MLA degree a few years later, mid '90s or so. What drew you to that? What What were you after there? And and by the way, what is an MLA degree? Master, Master of Liberal Art. Master of pronouncing difficult words. <laughs> Master of liberal arts. So nothing against my engineering degree. Engineering school, I went to Duke for engineering and uh, good program, great program. But you don't get a lot of, you get, I, I wrote computer code, but uh, I didn't write paragraphs and essays and things like that. And that was fine with me because I couldn't. I really just wanted to get through the program. So I, you, you come out obviously really strong in math and science, and you don't come out strong in, in the arts. So I decided that um, I love to draw as a cartoonist, but drawing really is not even half the game with a lot of this, you know, the visual. It's really, especially as comic strips physically have gotten smaller, it's really all about the storytelling and the writing. So I, just, I looked in the mirror one day and I said, you know, you're a pretty good artist, but you can't write. I mean, you don't even know where to put a comma in half of sentences you write. You know, you, you need an editor. So I was like, all right, so I'm going to, instead of taking a lot of random courses, I'm going to I'm gonna get into a program. I'm going to get into a master's program, and I'm going to learn how to write. So it forced me to write a lot, and um, I think I'm a little bit better at it now. Tell me more about the curriculum. What kind of coursework and what kind of exercises did you do? We studied a lot of Literature, you know, there was some electives. I, I took a course in opera. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why. <laughs> Literary deconstruction. It's what, analyzing story structure and storylines and story flow? 
Right. Yeah. Analyzing stories and entire books and things like that. Trying to think back now. I did. There's some political science in there, but it was all writing. You know, you were writing about political science and that was the exercise that I really needed. I didn't, you know, necessarily need to know any more about history or opera, but to have have to write that paper, that very long paper at the end was really where the payoff was for me. And to have, you know, real academics, professors looking at your writing and saying, this, this is terrible, you know, you should do this, or this really should be in two sentences, or, you know, I never had that before. So they don't do that in engineering school. So <laughs> it helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, my freshman year of college, we had to take a course titled World Civilization. It was a 10-week term. Uh-huh. And every week, at the end of every week, you had to write a five to no more than seven page paper, which sounds maybe sort of short, but it had to be like, you know, a thought, a topic, a premise, yeah. a discussion, a conclusion. And both, I think this gets back to your earlier point about formulating the problem, finding and choosing an interesting question or topic, and then understanding its structure, and then figure out what do you think about this and how do you not ramble for, how do you get exactly. more than one paragraph and how do you not ramble for 34 pages? Cause you're not quite sure what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think having been an engineer or at least a student in engineering, I'm a better writer for it. You do know how to state the problem. You know how to attack it and you know what a, a good answer is. There's no sort of blowing smoke as that's just a, against our religion as, as engineers. So. Yeah. And stand up for your answer and stand accountable for it. Exactly. Yeah. Support it with logic and foundation. Yeah. And change when you discover the flaw in your answer and go to the right one. Exactly. Yeah. That's been a good exercise for me. So I'd still like to understand more about your early creative process of thinking back to that shark you saw as a 12-year-old in that lagoon and coming up with the notion, well, it's well, it's a it is a shark and he's kind of pudgy and his name is Sherman and he's he's got these other friends. How did that all evolve and come together? Right. Well, so one of the things I learned in the liberal arts program was that story is really conflict and characters and so you you learn how to tell stories. And so I needed really what I was after was a lead character and I I took my obsession with sharks and I I created a lead character and I didn't want the stereotypical lead character. I wanted a a character that broke stereotypes. You know, that's an interesting character. So I, you know, I took this shark that was in many people's eyes a monster, a man-eating, remorseless eating machine, and I made him kind of a kind of a coward, you know, and kind of lazy and kind of a doofus. Kind of a doofus. So he's he had these human traits and it really is, I mean, I describe my comic strip as as people in fish costumes. So <laughs> I had this. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's so I mean, right. It, right. I mean, so and and people, readers, audiences want really to read a little bit about themselves. I think there's this sort of self-preservation value to listening to stories. It goes back to you know the Stone Age. It's like we listen to stories because they interest us, and they interest us because there's self-interest there. There's self-preservation there. So, you know, thirty thousand years ago when we talked about you know encountering that that saber-toothed tiger in the in the woods um we were all ears because we might actually encounter that saber-toothed tiger so there's you know if there's self if we can identify with the character then there's something we're hardwired to to be entertained and listen to that um so i had this interesting you know lead character and then at that point when you build a an ensemble. And it's a little bit different from, say, writing a one-off novel or a play or a screenplay or whatever, where this is more like a sitcom where you really, you have to create an ensemble that gets into trouble and then everything gets set back to normal again after that episode. So if you think of your favorite sitcoms, that's what they do. They start with a bunch of characters that are very disparate, different characters. The conflict is really all about them butting heads over their different opinions or their different goals. And then they get into trouble, they resolve the problem, and then everything's back to normal again for the next episode next week. And that's, that's really what a comic strip is all about too. So, you know, so you build, you start with this, for me, I started with this main character, this doofus shark, and I built an ensemble around him. And some of that is based on real life. So Megan, the Sherman's wife is 
partly based on, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, partly based on my wife. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of autobiography there. Is Sherman autobiographical? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of that doofus in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm, I'll say that stupid thing at the dinner party that brings everybody to, you know, er, makes everybody's jaw drop. And I'm like, well, that was a real Sherman moment, wasn't it? <laughs> Who's Hawthorne? Yeah, he's a cantankerous little guy. He's he's actually partly a friend of mine in, in, who lives in L.A. who's just kind of like that. He's just cranky. And uh, I like um, so there's there's a part of a real personality in, in each one of these characters. Wow. Part of it is a little bit me, too. So. You know, Fillmore, the the sea turtle, who's kind of pensive and mm-hmm. a little bit artsy. There's a little bit of me in there as well. Um, but I also, he's a composite of some of my other friends who are, have that personality. And I think for me, it's important that you don't look that you don't look at other artwork for your art. You know, you when when Disney Disney animators drew Bambi, they brought in a real deer. Right. They didn't look at other deer drawings or deer cartoons. And as an artist, I think it's extremely important that we always draw from reality, not other art. So um, for me, I I really tried to block off all the other Mm. undersea cartoons or other, you know, characters like that. I didn't base my characters on any other fictional characters. Did they all kind of bring into your mind? I mean, did you sort of create the whole ensemble as the first strip, or did it start with a couple of the characters and grow more organically? It definitely grew organically. I, um, it, you know, all the characters, I did most of the characters. I actually started with more than the characters that we have now, and I, I had a lot of newspaper editors telling me I had too many characters, so I cut a few. Um, but they were sort of all the same. Um, I didn't create that sort of polarity difference overnight that they they kind of all kind of gravitated to their corner of extreme personalities <laughs> and it took a while because it took a while for me to figure out what I was doing what kind of stories did I like to tell um were they sort of internal conflict stories or adventure stories where they travel off and go go someplace so you know if you have a story I do a, a lot of stories like that where I take my characters to a far off place. I just took them to London, for example, but oftentimes I'll take them to a place in the ocean. You just took them to the sewers of London. I took them. Yeah. So that's based on a, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> that's, that's None based of us on have ever real... toured the sewers of London. I'll bet. <laughs> exactly. No. I mean, if you read my strip, you will go to glamorous places, but maybe not necessarily the, the, you know, the, the places you want to go. The part with. of the glamorous city that you were thinking of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so that's a that's an example of I I just pulled that right out of the headlines. I mean, there are really fat birds floating around in the sewers of London. It's kind of a disgusting storyline, which is perfect for my comic strip. (laughs) I loved it in that way. And to have those sort of running off to crazy destinations, you need a character who can enable that. So you have a, a MacGyver kind of character who, for me, is that little fish, Ernest, who can do everything. Or there's, uh, you know, the, there's a character who's obsessed with going there. So in this particular storyline, it was Hawthorne the crab who was just obsessed with seeing this thing. <laughs> so different characters drive different types of stories. I love the fact that now and then, you know, I mean, how did Hawthorne learn about the fat in the London sewers? I mean, there they are in the lagoon, 20 feet underwater, and yet they're reading newspapers. <laughs> right. Yeah. All these crossovers between our world and their world. And then they they reflect on our world. I mean, I, you must still get tremendous laughs out of the naked beach whales. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, or I, what? I, naked beach apes. The hairless beach apes. Yeah, yeah, they. I get emails from fans who they don't... Yeah, they use that word all the time. And, and yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But I don't have a hairless beach ape as a regular in the comic strip because it's, for me, it's, I think it's important to keep that world all yeah. fish or all, you know, underwater. All critters. I don't cross that barrier. So some storylines come from the headlines. How else? How else? And how do you, how do you work? Uh, you probably have a bit of a bow wave. You're not working today on tomorrow's cartoon. But what's your right. workflow and your work process? And, and did that just evolve organically or... I mean, it's kind of a craft. How do you learn the particulars of what materials to use? And yeah, so in the beginning, I was I, I had weekly deadlines, and in the beginning, I would sit around and all day and do nothing, and 
try to think of something and then I'd do it again the next day. And then I'd have about a day and a half left and I'd draw it all at the end, you know, on some giant coffee drinking, you know, binge. Um, and I decided that in the long run, you know, if you're going to do this for a living, uh, you really have to have a kind of a approach it more like a trade where you really, you have a daily deadline. You have to, you have to write this gag today. And um, so I, I devote two or three days to writing the strip, a week's worth of strip. And then I'll- To writing the text? To writing the text, the story, the dialogue in, in the text form. And I physically put it, I work on a computer now, so I, but I physically put that handwritten dialogue in the physical four panel comic strip. Like, so the, the dialogue goes in the comic strip first because it's a lot easier to draw around dialogue than to write around drawings. Ah. So you can fill the panel with mostly text and put a tiny little drawing in that panel and you can still tell that story. Voila, you have a cartoon. Exactly. So I, I draw most of the, the seven strips. There's six dailies in a Sunday. I'll draw them mostly, most, do most of the drawing in a, about a day and a half. And the drawing part is usually pretty easy. Um, that's something that comes automatically to me, but the writing is still very difficult. And what do you have to send in, a, in this computer age maybe is different than it was back in the olden print days. Do you have to send like fully finished, just JPEG or PNG or whatever, and off it goes? Or what's that interaction with your editors? Yeah, they expect that <laughs> there's not a lot of interaction. I mean, I, okay. I love those guys. They're great. But I think if I were to go away, it would take a month to notice. <laughs> They, uh, so uh, yeah, they're expecting seven, you know, JPEGs, um, a week and, you know, they edit it for my still pretty common, sadly, all too common grammatical errors. And, um, occasionally I, I will write something that sort of, um, goes against their, their legal department. But, um, other than that, um, they are, uh, they, ex they're expecting seven just flat JPEGs a week. Wow. Wow. So you sort of learned that cadence and learned that style over time. Yeah, I, I call it more of a trade than an art, really, because uh, you you really have to keep producing. And, you know, I, I produce one book a year um, and it's about maybe two thirds of the year's worth of comic strips. So it's a it's a collection where, you know, art, it's 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 something where you I think you you glean success out of a field of failure. You know, you, I, I've, I'll be the first to admit I've got a lot of bad strips out there, but every now and then I, I've got a zinger and it, it makes that worthwhile. And if you don't have that output, if you, if you sit in a room and you, you say to yourself, I'm not going to do anything until I come up with something brilliant, you're, chances are you're not going to come up with anything brilliant. Really success in, in, for me, success in art is all about gleaning those little nuggets of success out of a complete field of failure. And it's all about experimentation and going down blind alleys and making a lot of mistakes. And, and with a comic strip, your mistakes are public. Millions of people are seeing your mistakes and your experiments. Um, and there's, you know, it's a kind of a humiliating process. What, what's that like? I mean, you said earlier, your audience is sort of just out there when you have one mm -hmm. of those bomb strips. What is that like? I mean, you know, it's a bomb and you just sort of embarrassed in the abstract that millions of people are reading it or do you get feedback that that tells you Jesus really was bad well there's different ways of being bad and you know I've had enough time in my career to to explore all of them thoroughly <laughs> so, uh, there's just not funny bad which is all too common and you know a lot of people if you're trying to make somebody laugh and you fall short but they at least understand the joke it's just a bad joke that's perfectly acceptable in, in our world. And, you know, there's, it's just a bad joke. But if, if you try to tell a joke and they don't get it, and they're like, huh? Then you, you've sort of insulted their intelligence maybe a little bit. That's the, that's the kind of cartoon nobody likes. And I get a lot of hate mail for that. Really? Or occasionally I may offend somebody. And that's, especially these days, that's a, that's a very, very tricky area. So I'm especially, especially lately, especially, you know, as I, become an older cartoonist in a, in a world that's driven where the humor, the humor sensibilities are driven by mostly people younger than me. I I'm fully aware that I'm skating on thin ice um, in a lot of issues. So uh, for me, I try to confine myself to ocean conservation. And even then I, I, I managed to get under a few people's skin, even, even with these issues. 
And so you get barrages of critical and hateful mail for that email? Well, not not necessarily. It's just like, you know, I'll give you an example. I did a, a series on shark finning and um, I got a lot of email to the fact to the effect of, you know, I mean, we're better off without sharks, aren't we? <laughs> oh, like, really? Yeah. It's like, you know, there's just pests like mosquitoes. Let's just, you know, why don't we just get rid of all of them and, you know, be go, get on with it. But um, and then so or the other common email is, you know, they see environmental as political. And I, I firmly don't think there should be an overlap between politics and, and environmental issues. There, there is. But one of my goals in the comic strip is to try to make the environmental issues apolitical. And, um, you know, but, but I do get readers telling me, you know, I, I don't look for I don't want politics in my funnies. Ah, yeah. And which yeah. is, you know, a bit ironic because cartoons, especially in America, they're they're really their genesis was in political statement. I mean, there were political cartoons. Yeah. And there's it's almost inevitably something political in lots of comic strips. Pogo, right. for goodness sake, back when was sort of the archetype. Right. right? But um, let's just loop back for a second to shark finning for listeners that may not be familiar with the nature and scale of this problem. This is the practice of hauling large sharks out of the ocean, lopping off their dorsal fin, the fin in the middle of the back, the one that you see piercing the surface on jaws that terrifies everyone, um, and then throwing the maimed and bleeding shark body back into the water because the only thing you wanted was the fin, right? And it's like how many sharks a year are killed in that way? Well, I've heard the number 70 million. I, I, um, it's, it's a lot anyway. Um, and it's, you know, you, from your days at NOAA, you're, you're very, very familiar with, with this issue. It's yeah. It's tens of thousands routinely on a single commercial voyage, uh, because it's a treasured compound aphrodisiac, uh, something in Asian holistic, uh, medicine and remedies. Yeah. And, um, if you run a fishing boat, if you want to run a profitable fishing boat, it's it's a lot better to fill your boat with $100 an ounce fin than a $3 a pound shark. Right. So um, it's, that's the way you do it. But um, it's a it's a tricky topic. Um, and uh, since my main character was a shark, I figured um, I it was my duty really to <laughs> to try to bring this to to more light publicly. And uh, I actually worked with um, the uh, with Noah, um, you it was. I'm trying to think who the director was. It might have been Jane Lipchenko who was directing Noah at the time, and J- Jim Bausinger was the fisheries mm-hmm. director. And uh, so I had a Sunday cartoon where the readers filled in a drawing of their favorite shark, and they could send this um, this clip out Sunday to uh, Dr. Bausinger's office, and he got sacks and sacks of this of this mail, and then apparently it helped them sort of. Uh, form an argument for getting the Shark Protection Act through Congress, um, which was important. Right. Now, your work has been a tremendous boon to Noah, uh, and uh, you're often often the favorite, well, you're always the favorite when you're available, but the keynote speaker for the Marine Sanctuaries Foundation, uh, when they have their big fundraiser and gala. So it's uh, thank thank you for all of that wonderful service. It's important. Yeah, well... You know, when I was a kid, NASA was the the glamorous part of government. You know, they were sending for obvious reasons. But I think as we move forward and as climate and uh, the environment become more and more, you know, the 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 health of the climate environment or the the health of the environment becomes more and more of a part of our lives. I think NOAA will become the most significant um, department in in our government. And I I I'd like to see more stories come out of you know, what, what Noah does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you do a lot to help with that. I'm curious how easy or hard, I mean, you were an engineer, you're salaried, probably married in a family at that point. It would seem a bit jumping off a cliff decision to shift from all of that and become a cartoonist. Well, was it like that or was it a very obvious, easy thing to do? Um, no, it wasn't easy. Um, it was something I think you really, you really, really have to want deeply and, and be willing to make a sacrifice. I, 
I took kind of a lack of a better term. I took kind of an entrepreneurial approach to it. I self-syndicated. So um, as a cartoonist, your biggest barrier is to get into the syndicate. We talked about this earlier in our conversation. And once you've been accepted by a syndicate, then, um, you know, you, um, they, they will sell, you know, lots of papers and you can start making a living. But um, to sort of get past that barrier was, was very challenging. So I actually started my own syndicate. Wow. <laughs> I started sending my comic strip directly to newspapers. And, you know, I went out and kind of disguised myself as a, as a syndicate. I would call myself Pacific Press Features. And, you know, I, we were launching a comic strip of one. And um, <laughs> long story short was I got about 30 clients and uh, some bigger ones, Denver Post and Dallas Morning News and Honolulu Star. Um, and um, and the, the way I got signed with a syndicate was that an, another syndicate salesman was in the office of one of these newspapers. And the editor said, uh, we're not going to buy your strip. But, hey, we just bought this thing. You, you should take it, check it out. From this guy who's impersonating a syndicate. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I sort of bypassed that whole process by by doing that. And, um, um, it helped, but, but again, it, it, it was, it was a long ramp up process to actually making a living. So I, I did keep my day job for a good five years. Wow. That's definitely double dipping, but yeah, those were long days. I didn't have kids then. It is very long days, but again, you, you have to want it. Yeah. Well, you know, I love that impersonating this, the syndicate part that again, reinforces your message of, you have to formulate the problem correctly. And the problem is it takes a syndicate to get in the door. I'll be a syndicate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 That's brilliant. So let's come back to the ocean because we're coming close to our, our allotted time here. Uh, I'm wondering where you, I'm wondering two things. I'm wondering where your optimism, pessimism needle is at this point uh, from you know, minus 10 to plus 10. Mm. With respect to particularly the the health and future of the ocean, which is, you know, it's the central unit in the life support system of this planet, which is not just our life support system, but the every living thing on the planet life support system. So, where do you think we are right now? I, well, I'm I'm extremely optimistic. I think I think we're at a point in time where. You know, we're. I think we're just starting to discover, you know, what, how, how much damage we're doing to the ocean. I think we're, you know, we don't have a lot of time to, to change course, but I think we do have the brain power, and ultimately, we will have the political will to do it. Um, I about five years ago, I moved my family to the ocean for two years. We we bought a sailboat and we wow. sailed all over the ocean. We sailed all over the med. We sailed across the Atlantic. We sailed all over the Caribbean. And um, I, so we saw a lot of ocean, not only a lot of ocean life, we saw a lot of ocean pollution, but we also saw a lot of people making a living sustainably um, in the ocean. And, uh, and it, it's not healthy. We, we did see a lot of trash in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I've been down, like you, I've been down uh, to the bottom of the ocean in, in DSV Alvin, uh, two miles deep. And one of the first things I saw was a bag of trash. So amazing. It's everywhere. Yeah. But these are things I think we can, we as individuals can change tomorrow. We can, we can use alternatives to plastic bags and um, other things we can do. We, we can become more aware of the kind of seafood we eat or preferably eat much less of it. There's certain t types of seafood that's destructive. The catching, the method of catching is destructive. So some of these things as individual consumers, we can, we can change today. Um, some of the bigger issues, um, ocean acidification, uh, temperature rise, um, things that are, you know, causing these bigger problems are, are go beyond the ocean conservation community. They really need yeah. global cooperation. Right. Cause they, they are directly the carbon problem, both the increasing acidification as, uh, as the ocean as CO2 gets absorbed into the water and makes it more yep. acidic. Yes, exactly. Um, and those, those, are, those are things, I, again, I'm still optimistic. I think things are going, things are changing. Uh, we just, you know, uh, we have to, I think, focus on, um, you know, formulating that political will um, and 
you know, I think one of the big challenges is is expressing this environmental problem to get back to the engineering thing, expressing this problem in terms that everybody can relate to. Yeah. And uh, if you enjoy the water, if you enjoy eating fish, if you if you're religious and you think that the planet is that it's God's creation or, or there's all kinds of ways you can cut environmentalism that appeals to lots of different people. And I, I don't think we're doing enough of that yet. I think that's important. Yeah, my favorite hook is Sylvia Earle's line of, if you enjoy having oxygen to breathe, yeah, <laughs> you might right. want to take care of the ocean. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's half of our oxygen. Yeah, exactly. If you had one lesson or tip or wish to express to our listeners of about the ocean and something they could do, something come to mind? Besides Reed Sherman's Lagoon, of course. <laughs> um, well, I think there's more and more... Uh, there's more and more, more ways to learn about the ocean. And I think, I think the more we understand the ocean, uh, the, the more we'll appreciate it and respect it. And the more willing we will be to make the sacrifices we need to make or make the lifestyle changes that we need to make to, to, um, to create a healthier ocean. So um, just look at that world as not an alien dark world that's underneath the waves. It has nothing to do with us, but look at it as, you know, that 70% of the planet that's just as lively and vibrant and important to us as the 30% we live on. Well, Jim, thank you so very much for both the, the inspiration and humor you bring to our lives every day, and in particular, all the wonderful things you've done to try to help address this problem of bringing delight and enjoyment and appreciation of the ocean to public consciousness and to politicians in ways that can help change course for the future of our ocean. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks particularly for joining me for this conversation. No, thank you very much, Kathy. It was a great opportunity to, to, to talk to you. I'm, I'm a, you know, a huge um, admirer of, of, of your feats, and I, uh, it was truly a pleasure to be on this podcast. Always delightful to talk with you, Jim. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.